our series called Pursuing Life in the Holy Spirit. And today, I want to talk about something wonderful, something to be experienced, something that is for every believer, and something that we as an eldership are longing to see SBC move into, not only corporately, but for us as well, as um, individuals, we wanting to see the life of the Spirit come to us as God's people. And so today, I want to unpack a bit more of what we're feeling God calling us to in terms of loving up. Remember, God's calling us as a church to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And if you've listened carefully to the dimensions of that, we need all the help we can get, not so? And that helper is called the Holy Spirit. And so today, I want to unpack something that we are going to be pursuing together as a congregation on, the, on February the 27th. It's a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock here. We're canceling all small groups. All small groups are coming here to this venue, and all four congregations are gathering. You don't have to be in a small group to be a part of that evening. And we're going to pursue, we're going to pursue the Holy Spirit together as a church. And so what I'm talking about today is something that's wonderful. It's something that I hope stirs you, and something that I hope you feel is available to you, no matter where you're at today. And it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many terms I'm going to use, as I'll show you in Scripture, the outpourings, the, the infillings of the Spirit. But today, we're talking about something experiential. Because remember, in week one, we said the Holy Spirit is a person. I mean, isn't it weird if someone's a person, but you never, ever experience their presence in the room? Not so? Isn't it weird that a Holy Spirit can be a person and only subconscious? No, no. He's a person. He can be felt, and he speaks, and he interacts with us. And we looked at the kind of work he does in week two, these general principles of how the Holy Spirit manifests himself. But then in week three last week, Joey unpacked this incredibly important work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Can I say to you this morning, 10 o'clock, unless the Spirit is at work in a person's life, they cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this work is massive, and it is the start of any possible salvation in Jesus Christ. Because why? Without the Holy Spirit, we are dead. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, we're just a bunch of corpses spiritually. And the Holy Spirit has to wake us up from our spiritually dead slumber. It's called regeneration. He has to quicken us. And then he has to shine God's holy light on our sin. If you haven't seen sin yet in your life, you haven't seen salvation and that comes by the help of the Spirit, and that's called conviction. Oh, but then he turns us to the love of God in Christ Jesus and shows us our only hope is Christ and leads us to repentance and faith. And then he makes us an entirely new creation on the inside, and praise God, gone is that old death sentence. We now live under the sentence of not guilty. Isn't that wonderful? As a believer, the Holy Spirit makes us an entirely new creation, and the sentence over your life and mine as Christians in the presence of God is not guilty. So we don't receive God as a judge anymore. We come to Him as a Father, and that is a game changer. That's a game changer. Ah, but there's something else that's more wonderful, is we must never minimize the regenerating work of the Spirit, because it is at this point in the believer's life that God Himself comes to dwell in him or her. The moment the Father and the Son, as it's explained by the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in the life of the believer is at conversion. 
It's massive. It's the greatest privilege we could possibly think of to be called temple residences of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, we see in the next point that I want to point out to you today that in Scripture, the work of the Spirit doesn't stop here at conversion. It has only begun. And this mighty Holy Spirit wants to be active in moving God's work forward in you and through you. And I want to quickly give you some headlines of how he does that today. We're going to unpack a little bit a bit later in the preach. But the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is he gives you an experience of sonship or daughtership, whichever category you fall into. Friends, how many of us here wish we could feel that we are loved by the Father? You know in your mind by the gospel, oh, yes, yeah, God loves me for God so loved the world. John 3.16, right? I'm trying to get my daughter. She'll learn it soon. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is enough for salvation to have an understanding with your mind. But what the Spirit says is he brings the confirmation of the sonship and daughtership in your heart. Isn't that beautiful? And in Romans chapter 5, 5, it says, because God has poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's been given to us by nature of our conversion. Oh, but there's something more that the Holy Spirit pours out into us. It's where we feel. It's where we experience. It's into our hearts. Amen. And so this is something wonderful. We come to know God's love for us. But the second is this. The Holy Spirit propels us forward in our sanctification. What does that big word mean? It means he helps us look more and more like Jesus. And I won't preach into that because Peter's going to be doing it next week. He sharpens our conscience. He, he leads us and reminds us of the truth. He melts our hearts and helps us bend to his will. But the third thing that we're going to look at this morning is how he empowers us for service. Oh, wow. This Holy Spirit in Scripture, so often he comes upon a person or a group of people and they are clothed with power and boldness. And we start to see the effect of the Spirit's ministry in the life of a believer. And it's a catalyst. It's a game changer to the effectiveness of that believer's life. He apportions and activates spiritual gifts. He starts to build up the church. He leads God's people into the knowledge of God's will. Oh, my friend, he gives us power for service. Anybody here read their Bibles regularly? There's one thing you realize. You need help to live this life. We need all the help we can get. And so this morning, I want to point out that those three things, they are experiential. It's those three things, this feeling of the love of God poured out into your heart, this feeling of God's voice leading us into holiness, this experience of power. I tell you, power is not a subconscious feeling. It is something that we experience, and it comes through an awareness of the heightened work of the Spirit in your life and mine. You see, as Baptists, or having our heritage as a Baptist church, is we're good at the illuminating work of the Spirit. When we open up God's Bible, we pray, would you show us the truth? And that's right. And it's enough to be saved. But my friends, what I'm talking about here this morning is an experience that goes beyond illumination. And the reason why that's important is if your story is like mine, you don't feel very much at your conversion. Uh, you can see enough to see your sin and the cross. And in your mind, you can repent. That means the changing of your mind. You don't necessarily feel very much in your heart. It's just the bare beginning. But what God is wanting to move us forward in, oh, it is experiential. And so what I'm talking about today is how the life of the Spirit comes to the believer. And the, Holy, the, the, the Scriptures explain it like this. 
It's being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Scripture, this filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, it comes in two ways. And the best way I can explain it to you this morning is the way that my parents fill up their swimming pool. Now, I love swimming. And with my kids, often after we've been there for a while, we've done all the bomb drops possible. And then this water is starting to go a bit low, right? And what do they do? Just so you know that they don't break the rules, rules of BCM. They have a JoJo tank and they put a hose pipe in and they turn it on. And over a couple of hours, the water level rises. Not so. So over a period of time, it's a continuous flow. And that's the first way that the Spirit works in a believer's life is he helps, in a sense, like a little stream, fill us up. And that's daily. As we come into the presence of God, we're trying to sense this connection with the Savior through the Spirit. And it's gentle. It's wonderful. You can do surprising things when you set time aside to spend with the Lord. He speaks to you. It's gentle. It's quiet. It's refreshing. It's like having a drink of water. Oh, but there can be a time when there's a deluge of rain. And suddenly, the heavens open. And within a couple of minutes, that swimming pool is gushing over. And it can't contain the outpouring of water. Anybody experienced that with the swimming pool? Yeah, I have. You know, in 2010, I don't know if you remember when that rain came down. It was torrential. And that whole Rosin Road area was absolutely flooded. And my parents' walls just felt fell down. It was quite scary because they were on holiday and I had to try and uh, secure the house. But I tell you what, guys, there are two ways and we are to seek both fillings, this daily infilling Ephesians. I mean, Paul says to the Ephesians, be filled continuously with the Spirit. But oh, there's also this wonderful experiential outpouring that can do in a few minutes what it takes a lifetime in its absence to do. And I hope I've piqued your curiosity here. Because I want to talk today about what it means to come under the deluge, the downpour of the spirits. And it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's got a lot of other terms, I'll tell you now. But I want to zone in on that. This baptizing work of the Spirit. Now I want to point out to you, if you read your Bible, the evidence of the experiential work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is everywhere. And so it is prior to Pentecost. If you read your Old Testament, you'll notice that there are powerful outpourings of the Spirit. And it's nothing new. You see men and women prophesying. In other words, there's an open heaven of understanding what God is doing now and what he's going to do. You see guys being raised from the dead. You see people running kilometers at breakneck speed. You see ripping off of gates of cities and healings and people being caught up in trances. Friends, today, if you want to read your Old Testament, it's a lot more charismatic than what we give it credit for. And that was just here with the work of the Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was just for a select few, for a select purpose. And Moses, Moses cries out in a sense, in Numbers 11 verse 29, he says, I wish, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That what he encountered in the Holy Spirit, the rest of God's people would do that. And we sense this growing expectation in Scripture of a greater and wider outpouring of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament. Praise God. And one of my favorite verses is Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel says, it's going to come a time. There's going to come a time when God is not only just going to pour out His Spirit on a few people, He's going to put His Spirit in us, and it's going to produce a life-changing power and force to live for God, where the law was something external. Oh, by the Spirit, God was going to write His law on the hearts of His people. And here we see it in Joel as well, where he says, don't you know that a day is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh? Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, he says, listen to this, 
your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Friends, what Joel is talking about is not conversion. He's talking about power. That we are able to operate at a spiritual dimension that flabbergasts the world. But the beauty of it is there will be no exception on all flesh. It's on offer to all of God's people. And I want to point out John the Baptist. He snuck into you, as PJ Smythe points out, the New Testament. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He says, don't you know? There is a man coming of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. I baptize you with water. Oh, no, no. But don't you know this man? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I ask anybody here today, have you put your hand in fire and felt nothing? When you sit there watching your hand dissolve in the flames, you go, oh, I don't feel anything. Friends, today, this baptism it is marked by this water of Christ's baptism. It's being plunged. I dived in the, into the pool on Friday. It was such a hot day. And my folks have a swimming pool. And I dived in. And as I went in, I could feel immersed in this glorious liquid of just being refreshed and being made, uh, giving a sense of newness of life. And Jesus is said, he's going to do this. And John was waiting for it. And oh, wow. Jesus says to his disciples, don't you do anything until you've had an experience of what this Holy Spirit being poured out into your heart means. Don't you love what Jesus says? He says here, I have completely lost my place. <laughs> ah, here we go. He says, there's this age of the Spirit that's going to come. Disciples, don't grieve that I'm telling you I'm going to go. It's to your advantage that, that I go, that when I go to the Father, I'm going to pray a special prayer, that the age of the Spirit is going to come down, and you are going to go further than I ever did in the flesh. And he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 45, his last conversation with his disciples, he said, you heard from me, for John, uh, wait for the promise of the Father, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And after just a few days of praying in that upper room, and I have to laugh, the very day Israel celebrates the giving of the law, which was Pentecost. God doesn't pour out the Mosaic law afresh on his believers. He pours out the Spirit. And suddenly in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, that place is shaken. And there's these flames of fire on those disciples. And let me tell you, those disciples were never the same again. There are people in our city troubling us, saying that you need to keep the Mosaic law. You tell them, what did Christ pour out in Acts chapter 2? He poured out the Spirit. He poured out this empowering to go way beyond what the law of Moses could ever do. And my friends, it's not just for a select few, God forbid. Oh, we see in this New Testament that every believer close to conversion or if they couldn't find it after conversion, were prayed for it so that there was no two-class Christianity. The New Testament norm is all of God's people experience this outpouring of the Spirit. And we live in this age now, as PJ Smart says, this Joel prophecy of Joel chapter 2, it is for you and it's for me. So what exactly do we mean? I want to focus a little bit on this. What exactly do we mean by the Holy baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I want to say that I'm sure amongst us here, we've heard different teachings of what this possibly means. And I want to address this briefly. What I'm talking about in this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit is I'm talking about this swimming pool flooding over from a few minutes of downpour. You with me? I'm talking about this aspect of the Holy Spirit that is experiential, and it is something that is powerful and transforming in its effects. 
And when you look at Acts, it's these outpourings, and by the way, my notes are available at the back for anybody who wants them, so just relax if you're a note taker. These outpourings are totally different. You read in Acts chapter 2, you read in Acts chapter 4, you read in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 19. All of these experiences are different, and all of these experiences result in the same thing. And you'll hear me here today, I try not to talk too much about individual experience, because what we tend to do is you put that up on the pedestal and say, I must have that. Let me tell you, God does it in surprising ways to a hungry believer. And so, some of us, and like myself, have understood that the teaching, that when we use this term, baptism of the Holy Spirit, particularly conservative teaching, is that it means what we receive at our conversion. Now, if you're not too familiar with this teaching, don't worry too much, but I want to talk to those who maybe have a few concerns about us using the baptism of the Spirit Spirit in such an experiential way. Guys who I admire, big theologians, men who are godly, hold to the teaching that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is what describes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's when Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And they say, well, this is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's what you receive at conversion. It all comes as one package. But as elders, we have examined this. And I want to say to you today that we agree with this, that this 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is talking about conversion. And it's talking about the conversion work of the Spirit. Everybody who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. It's so important. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to receive Christ. Amen? But when these guys say this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a technical term, in other words, you can only apply it in its 1 Corinthians 12, 13 context. In other words, there is no brand width for the use of this term. In other ways, we disagree. Do you know that in the the Luke and Acts narrative alone, they use 10 different names for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And baptism is not a technical term in Scripture. It can even mean suffering if you want to apply it. But I'll tell you some of the names that show that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is not applied technically in Scripture. It's called the promise of the Father, being baptized with the Spirit, the Spirit coming upon people, receiving power, Filled with the Spirit, the Spirit being poured out, the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit being received, the Spirit falling on people, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. My friends, Scripture is so broad with this term, it's an invitation to experience this over and over and over again. And might I just point out to you today, you'll hear me use very different terms. I don't care what you call it, but I'm hoping we're talking about the same thing. You'll hear me say outpouring infilling, the gift of the Spirit, the promise of the Father, this receiving of power, this being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. And can I say, the reason why we do not hold that it's at conversion is because it happens more than once in Scripture. Don't be like that person that says, in 1949, I had experience with God, and that was it. Oh, no, if you look at the life of Peter, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, no, Acts chapter 4. Let me not go off my notes here. Acts chapter 4. He gets filled again by the Spirit when he's standing before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. When the, when the congregations call together to pray, he gets filled again. 4, verse 31, sorry. Over and over again, there are these deluges of power within Peter's life. And it is the mark of his authority and his ability to enter into an effective ministry for God. Also, I would say that the reason why we don't say it's at conversion is because if you look at Scripture, there are many examples of it coming after conversion. 
And I'm very encouraged because if you go to ask me and many of my friends that have sought to enter into something like this, it hasn't come with my conversion or theirs. And I'll tell you why we don't believe 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we are in this experiential outpouring. It's because Paul himself, who wrote that verse, experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit three days after who converted him. Who converted Paul here? Jesus Christ! Anybody want to be converted by someone more effective than that? Anybody want to receive the fullness of the conversion after Christ? I mean, I would love to be driving in my car. Imagine this, Michael. You're off to work, and suddenly Christ appears to you and says, Michael, Michael, why are you persecuting me? And there he's struck blind, and Paul is sitting waiting for God to do something, and he sends a man called Ananias, and Ananias arrives three days later, lays his hands on Paul, and says, Paul, come be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I also ask the question, if this thing comes with conversion, where is it? If by nature it's automatic at our conversion, where is this New Testament power that transformed cities and nations and kingdoms? Where is this glorious power in the church? I'll say to you today, my friends, what we are talking about here, I don't care what your doctrinal position is. Surely we have every encouragement, and I say that respectfully here, no matter where you land, we have every encouragement to seek the New Testament norm of powerful infillings of the Spirit, and we see how necessary they are to the life and effectiveness of the church. Now, I want to lean into that a little bit more. I hope I'm whetting your appetite. Why is this outpouring of the Spirit so important to the life of the believer? Well, I want to come back to my headlines at the beginning. The first thing we see, oh wow, is that it enables this essential power for service. Jesus says, you will receive power to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I love P.J. Smythe's example of what this is. He says it's like a boxing glove before there's any fist in it. And I come to Howie, and he has a nine-year-old son, and they're busy playing in the sports shop, and, he's, and his nine-year-old son says, Dad, stop tickling me. But then he says, this outpouring of the Spirit, it's like a fist comes into that glove, and suddenly there's a packing of a punch. Suddenly, when you're proclaiming the gospel, there's this unusual power backing it. And P.J. Smart says, when he is sharing the gospel from the pulpit, or when he's seeking to share the gospel one-on-one, he senses this power of the Spirit moving him forward. And there's suddenly wisdom he never had before. There's orchestrations he never had before. And suddenly he senses this movement of God behind him for the salvation of the soul before him. Now, I want to point out to you that Jesus Christ himself did not even dare minister without this understanding of this empowering of the Spirit. You know, we mustn't get so super spiritual about Jesus. One of the greatest encouragements about Christ was after 30 years, you were surprised by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to undermine the work of the Spirit in Christ. He was conceived by the Spirit, the divine Son of God, sinless, wonderful, led by the Spirit. Oh, but don't you think it's wonderful? There is Jesus Christ, and he's flowing with the move of God. It shows the unity of Christ, of what he's doing through John the Baptist, and he's submitting himself to the move of God. There's such an openness in Jesus, and there he is. He's praying with everybody else. There's nothing special that Jesus feels about him and and the Holy Spirit. He's coming with the people of God, and he's praying. And in that moment, this dove comes down and rests in him. And you want to know what Luke chapter 4 says about the very first thing after that experience in Jesus? He says, Jesus left in the power, in the fullness of the Spirit. 
the Son of God, had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that surprised him. And did you know, I hope you caught what I said two weeks ago, Christ never preached a sermon until he experienced that empowering. He never did a miracle until he experienced that empowering. And he's our model. And he says to his disciples, don't you even try until you know something of this power. And Luke chapter 4 verse 14, Jesus says, do you want to know where this power comes from? The very first scripture he unpacks according to Luke is he says, don't you know the spirit of the Lord is upon me? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This anointing of the Spirit is another term for this outpouring. This anointing is oil. And it's not a little smidgen that we put on here when we pray for healing. And by the way, I want to share a story from the 8 o'clock. We prayed for a lady two weeks ago for healing from her cancer. She had the scan. It's gone. But I want to say to you this morning, guys... When David received that horn of oil from Samuel, it poured down on him. And let me tell you, it stayed there a long time. And this anointing oil, it's lubrication. Suddenly what was so hard for you in the spirit becomes easy. You're flowing with God. You're hearing his voice. Things inside of you awaken for people and God starts talking to you about them. Starts, starts awakening generosity that was never there before. Starts awakening leadership. You see things for the church and you start running with it. There are certain things that begin to move in you because of this power and lubricating oil of the spirit. But there's more. There's a softening. And when this oil of the Spirit comes down, He softens our heart. We become so supple for Jesus. So open. So aware of our dependency upon Him. And He does more than that. This oil, it helps us. I've said it already. Move with ease. <laughs> I want that. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you about the great men of faith. This is nothing new. This is nothing something that was invented by the 20th century. Let me tell you now, there was a guy called D.L. Moody. Anybody here know who D.L. Moody is? Do yourself a favor. He was a guy that was a gifted speaker. A Sunday school teacher, that's how he started off. He would have 2,000 people come to his classes. He started to speak in Chicago, and he had the largest church in Chicago. But he got so annoyed one Sunday, actually repeatedly, because of these two little old ladies in front who kept talking in his sermon. Let me tell you, if there's one thing you want to irritate the preacher with is if you keep speaking. The wrath of Matt Johnson frequently wants to move that side of the youth at 6 p.m. service. And he came up to them afterwards and he says, why do you keep talking in my service? And they looked at him and said, we're not talking, we're praying for you. And D.L. Moody said, what? They said, D.L. Moody, do you know the promise of being baptized by, Holy, by the Holy Spirit and fire? You don't have it yet, we're praying that you get it. He was offended. But then he started to see that they had something he longed for. And I'm so encouraged by his story because it, it became a groaning in D.L. Moody that he said eventually, God, I don't want to live if you, can't, if you don't give this to me. I know that when I read scripture, there's something more here for the normal Christian, New Testament Christian that I'm lacking. And one day, I love it. I love it. I'm going to be going and leave this weekend coming. And so was D.L. Moody. He was in the streets of New York in his church was in Chicago. You can pray I have the same experience this weekend coming. And suddenly he was walking down the streets of New York and God poured out his spirit on this man. And he cried out. He said, Father, stay your hand. I can't cope with it. And he said the sermons didn't change. But the power was radical. Same message. Massive response. And D.L. Moody, millions of people through this man's ministry and through his effect raised up pastors who were so rabid in their confidence in the gospel. And this evangelist shaped America and helped Britain move into all of the blessings of the gospel. Friends, Whitfield was the same. 
They first thought it was a conversion experience because it was the first time they really felt the power of the Spirit. But they changed their minds later on. Oh, there's Whitfield, part of his holy club, and they're so, they're so legalistic. I mean, if you read the story, do it. They've got a list of like 40 things that they have to do and check in every day. What a, what a terrible thing. But I tell you one thing they did have. They had a hunger for more of God. And there's Whitfield, and he's walking down Oxford. He's in Oxford, the, the, the town of Oxford, and God pours out his spirit, and he said, there was this guy. He encountered the love of God, and he said he went out, and suddenly as he was preaching, nations came to Christ. I want to tell you the next thing that God will do is he will increase and intensify your sense of belonging to him, this intensification of sonship and daughtership. You know, I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit was not just there for service. Do you know why? Because I feel like I matter to God. As a child, I'm not just bringing my hands. He's wanting to engage my heart. And one of the things that happens to us when the Holy Spirit is poured out is we feel so close to the Father and so loved by Him. This is what Paul says. It's an emotional experience. It's not something that's subconscious. We cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. We know that we belong to Him and this incredible, wonderful sense of the Holy Spirit pours us out, poured out into our hearts and we feel the love of God exploding in us. And I'll tell you one thing. It produces the kind of worship that is inexpressible, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, and full of glory. Sometimes, not always, it's not always linked to the battle of the Holy Spirit. There's this thing called tongues. You know what tongues is? It is this accessing of this heavenly language because our earthly is not enough to declare the wonder and praise of what this God has done for us. It is this bursting of praise going, God, I'm breaking the limitations of my mind and of my English language because what you've done is breaking the limitations of my containing, being able to contain this love that you've poured out inside of me. You know what is the most precious thing as a father is when Sarah comes to me, she whispers in my ear, she says, Dada, I love you. In that moment, she's mine. She's mine. It's my, it's my girl. Friends, the Spirit draws us into a closeness with the Lord. And you want to know where the secret of power for service comes? It's because in your heart, you are so persuaded God loves you. You can stand up before thousands like Peter did and say, I don't care what you think about this message. Oh, to the perishing, it's, it's foolishness. Oh, but there's something that God wants to meet. Whether you like me or not, Stephen, whether you stone me or not, I don't care what you have to say about me because I know who loves me. He's my Father in heaven and nothing can change that. Some of us have such an insecurity of people's opinions in our lives because we have yet to encounter the assurance of the knowledge of the love of God. I want to tell you the story of John Wesley who founded Methodism. He says, before I had this encounter with the love of God, with the outpouring of the Spirit, I had the faith of a servant, but afterwards I had the faith of a son. There's a difference. There's a difference. And lastly, I won't take up time. I just want to point out that this Holy Spirit speeds up our desire to please God. When you realize how much the Father loves you and how important His opinion is of your life, it changes the way you see your decision-making. It changes the way you see your eternal life. It's not just about amassing a retirement annuity so that you can maybe, if possible, enjoy it. Maybe you won't even get to enjoy it because God will take you before then. It's understanding that my life is caught up with being pleased with being desired to be pleasing to the Father. And Pierre's going to preach on that more next week. But I want to say, if this is the New Testament norm, and it is, why is there such a delay? Why is there a delay in church history, and perhaps today, between 
what we see happening very close to or after conversion in the New Testament, taking so long for the church in the 21st century. If I had to ask you today, I think some of you would ask the same question of saying, if this is for every believer, why have I not experienced it yet? Well, the first is that, remember I said about the Holy Spirit. He is sovereign. We are calling this day together to pursue the Spirit together as a church on the 27th of February. But let me tell you now, I'm leaning into God's Word and I'm trusting Him to come because I know He's promised this, but I'm giving Him a free hand of how He wants to do it. You know, in, there's a story of Acts chapter 8. These Samaritan believers, they get saved. And the report gets back to Jerusalem. And the problem with these Samaritans are they are independent. They don't like the Jews. They are their own sect. And they are fiercely their own people. And the risk here is they can think that they don't need the church of Jerusalem. And what God does sovereignly to guard the unity of the church is he pours out the Spirit on the Samaritans through the sending of the apostles so that the the Samaritans understand we need Jerusalem. Let me tell you, if God delays the outpouring of this blessing, it's for some wonderful good. That in your life, he will show you. He will meet you in your way. He will meet you at the right time. This thing of the promise of God coming to your life, it's under his sovereign hand. And I promise it will be good for you. The second is this, is if you don't have a clear understanding of the gospel. In Acts chapter 19, these Ephesian disciples came and they didn't understand who Jesus was. They were a bit confused. They knew that he was a coming Messiah through the baptism of John. But Paul had to help them understand who Christ is. And my friend, if you don't understand the grace of God in Christ Jesus, in other words, you're trying to be good. That's how the world thinks. We've got to be good enough. If there's this legalism of trying to access the love of God through being good, how can the Holy Spirit come down on that? Let me tell you these Galatians. Paul says it's a mighty saying in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started off in the Spirit, but now you're trying to be completed by the flesh. And he says, you've grieved the Spirit. There's been something that has been blocked in the Spirit's capacity to move in your life because you've taken away what he is coming down upon, which is this wonderful freedom found in the good news of Jesus Christ. The third is a lack of commitments. And I think this is very real for us as 21st century Christians. Is if you begin your Christian walk half-hearted with a lack of commitment at the beginning, it hinders the receiving of the Spirit. Don't you remember what Peter told that Jewish council in Acts chapter 5 when they were bullying him, saying, you will not preach about Jesus? He says, don't you know what the disciple has to decide? The disciple has to decide whether it's good that we obey God or man. And let me tell you, I'm choosing, we must obey God. And the very next thing he says, he says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And can I say to you today, if you are holding back from yielding to God, it can hinder the receiving of the Spirit. Note, we are not talking about a total perfection. John uh, John Wesley got it wrong there. Not perfect obedience, but there must be a sense of I'm committed to Christ because this outpouring of the Spirit is to make Christ increasingly the object and pursuit of our lives. Now, there's also concerns about experiences. And I'm sure there are some here when I talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's two extremes. One is that you're afraid because of what God will give you or the experiences that try to be forced upon you. I grew up charismatic. I've seen it all. I've been smacked on. Anyway, I won't get all the, all the stories. Some of you know them so well. Can I say to you today, if this is what's on offer by the grace of God, it's the promise of the Father and the gift. Do you think God's going to give you anything you regret? 
Do you think so? No. Let me tell you, never in Scripture. And there were some crazy things. There were guys breaking out in tongues and prophecy. You read it. There were tongues of flaming fire. Trust me, they still had their hair at the end of it. Don't worry about it. Don't you think when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 11, it's the most precious thing. Maureen and I have a weakness. We want to spoil our children. That's just how we are. We have to keep reining it in because we're running out of draw space. How many parents here love spoiling their kids? Put up your hand. Help me out here. Come on, Gail. There we go. I've been to your house. I've been to Gail's birthday party for their son, Andrew, who attends the same school as my little girl. I tell you, they love that boy. There's Gail spray painting these cups and making them into trophies for their car theme. I tell you, I sat there going, I'm overwhelmed by the detail here. The love is just too much for me. My birthday, my daughter's birthday party is coming up. I can't compete with this. <laughs> I digress. Forgive me, Lord. Anyway, it was a wonderful party. Well done. So, guys, when Jesus says, if you as, good, as, as evil parents, he's talking about our limited, love to give good gifts to their children. In other words, when they ask for a gift, who gives a scorpion? Who gives a snake? He says, how much more? How much more will your father, you must be able to call him father, you must be born again, you must be a child of God. How much more will the father give the Holy Spirit? That's the one view. The other one is give good gifts to those who ask him. Isn't it wonderful? Don't be afraid of how God chooses to pour out the spirit in your life. It will be good. But the second is this, and this is my experience. So I'll just, you can laugh at me a bit, but I was desperate. I was obsessed with these experiences of the spirit. And you know what happened to me? I went through some of the driest portions of my life spiritually. The spirit is grieved. If we are just wanting to have some crazy entertainment experience, oh, guys, I'm telling you now, that is not the purpose of the outpouring of the spirit, let me tell you. Whilst we relinquish control in our openness to the spirit, we let him come as he chooses. And let me say to you today, the purpose of the outpouring of the spirit is to give you more of Christ. When we are going to gather on the 27th of February, we're not coming to be crazy. We're coming for Christ. Amen. We're wanting the power of his resurrection life, the same resurrection power of Jesus to empower us so that when we preach the gospel, that resurrection power comes upon people that need to be saved. We want to flow with this anointing where suddenly the spiritual gifts are awakened in us. And we'll get to that about what committed community looks like. We want to enter into the full dimension of the kingdom. Oh, this is not about just quirks. It's not about just crazy stuff. Let me tell you, the mark of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is weeks afterwards, you're in love with Jesus. You with me? Have I made myself clear? I'm telling you now, we are seeking the presence and blessing of Christ. And then lastly, what stops the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the overall condition of the church. When the church is back, why did we spend almost a year preaching through one chapter of Matthew? Matthew chapter 5, I'm sure you got sick of it by the end of November. Because, church, as the eldership, we understand, and as you need a grasp in your life, how can new wine be poured into old wines? In other words, this old way of life, this old way of thinking, this old way with a muck of sin, the Spirit wants to come down upon a believer who's committed to become more like Jesus. It starts with the heart, not with the hands. And so how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to come in for a landing here. I'm going to do it quickly. Well, the amazing thing is you might not even ask for it and it comes to you. 
That was the experience of Peter in Acts chapter 10. I get so confused with all these, these scriptures. <laughs> yes, Acts chapter 10. He's preaching in Cornelius' house, and he starts to preach. Oh, I hope it happens to me one day. Suddenly, this outpouring of the Spirit is poured out on these Gentile believers. And Peter had to have a kick up the pants through a vision to say, these are the guys you've got to go preach to. And suddenly, he says to the Jewish guys behind him, let's baptize these guys. They've got the same outpouring of the Spirit as we have. The gospel has come to the Gentiles. And it happened to my friend Calvin. I invited him to come in an SCA camp, and I was praying for him to come to faith. And that opening night, the speaker says, does anybody want to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Come right now. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And he said, who of those who want to do that? You stand. And Calvin stood. Now, that would be an awesome moment. Hey, how many of you have experienced? Yeah, my friends come to Christ. I was so excited. And he said, as we do in this church, as a good, good, good Bible-believing Christians, stand up, put your hand on them, and then we're going to pray for them. In that second, Calvin had the outpouring of the Spirit, and I was so offended. I'm like, I waited weeks, years, to experience this outpouring. You didn't even ask for it, you Scott Munkle. I can't believe it. He experiences outpouring of the Spirit. He didn't even ask for it. He didn't even know what it is. But let me tell you, Calvin's face was shining. The next morning he got up, that was not the same Calvin again. My friend was a changed man. And I, I tell you, this is how it works. One day we were praying in Cape Town. I was part of a church that was very hungry for the Lord. And we would come after work and we would come and read some scripture. And then we would start to pray and worship God. And God at times would come in and, and it was a day of just special visitation. And as, as a small little group in my friend's home, we're praying and we're singing and rejoicing in the Lord. And God pours out his spirit. And my friend at the end of it turned to me and said, Matthew, your face is shining. That's the same that happened to Moses in the presence of God. There was this transforming power, and we weren't even particularly asking for it. God was just pleased to give it. Oh, but for many of us, we're called to pray for this. Let me tell you, the greatest encouragement in the New Testament is at every point of the outpouring of the Spirit, except, except Peter's one when he's, praying, when he's preaching to those Gentiles. And I suspect they were praying because Cornelius had them gathered in the house beforehand. Guys, we're going to ask God to come and move here. But at every point, whether it's Christ praying at his outpouring, whether it's the church praying in Acts chapter 2, whether it's, it's, it's Paul crying out to God for three days, blind, saying, God, speak to me, come show me. And Ananias comes and prays. At every single point, there is this glorious calling out upon God to give it. What do you think those 120 disciples were praying about in that upper room? Ever thought about that? I'll tell you what they're praying for. The promise of the Father. Saying, Jesus you promised to us, won't you give it? And when it came, wow, what a moment for the church, repeated over and over again. And I say to you this morning, what do you do as a promise with the, as a Christian? You pray until it's fulfilled. Not so. That's why I preach the gospel. It's a promise. He says, if any man believes in his heart, confesses with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will be saved. It's a promise. I'm preaching the word of God. I'm proclaiming the good news. It's a message, a promise of God that if any man repents of his sin and turns to Christ, he will be saved. Why is the baptism of the Holy Spirit any different? It is taking God at His word and saying, God, I see in my life I don't have this New Testament quality of power. I see my church doesn't have this New Testament quality of power. God, there's something wrong here. Won't you please pour out your spirit on me and my church? And let me tell you some of the best men in my life. It's been their story. Who remembers John Besson here? He was a leader at SBC. I tell you that man, he's still such a good friend. Every time I talk to him, I just get a sense of the fullness of the spirit. And I don't want to idolize anybody. He's just a living example to me. You know what, John? I said to him one day, John, how did you get such a fullness of the Lord? 
And he said to me, you know, Matthew, God led me to pray on my own for a few weeks. And in my, in my private space, God poured out his spirit. And I could never be the same again. And do you know why? It's because you know the heights and the depths and the breadths of the love of God and his power. You can't go back to normal. There's a new normal in your life. And so we have to turn it into pleading. We get faith from God's word. We say, Lord, would you do this for me and for my church? But there's a third thing. is Peter said, we need to repent and believe and get our life right, and God will do this for you. Some of us in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it is a very important line for us. Some of us here have not experienced the outpouring of the Spirit because there is stuff in our life that's not right before God. And I just want to probe gently a little bit here because there's a story of Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. And in this wonderful revival that's happening, the apostles are praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the Simon magician sees what these apostles are doing and he says, I want to buy that with money. Give me that gift. And Peter, I'm telling you, experienced the righteous anger of the Spirit. And he says, you're wanting to purchase this gift of the Holy Spirit with money? He says, Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Any divisiveness or anger or unforgiveness, let me tell you, that's harbored in your heart towards anybody in the church. I tell you, the spirit is so sensitive. If you don't deal with it, forgive your brother or sister, even if it's 77 times 7. Whatever the context is, if there is gall and bitterness in our hearts, how can the spirit come down? And so might I just say, make peace today. Don't make a big fuss of it. Go to the person and say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Go to the person and say, I've been so angry at you. And these are the reasons why. Let me make right with you. Get right with God. My last point is this. How do, I, how do I know if I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Surely that's a good question. It's experiential. More often, something will be seen and something will be found. If you don't quite know what I'm talking about, it's still there to happen. Secondly, it can take some time between praying and receiving. For some, there's no drama, but a clear change is noticed over coming days. And that's P.J. Smart's story. He says he prayed and he had these moments in prayer that weren't dramatic and massive, but he could see over a period of time, God had met him and filled him. And he was aware of a relationship with the Holy Spirit that was much deeper and fuller than he had experienced a couple of months before. Others, it's more of a singular experience repeated over their lives. But the big thing is other people will notice. Whether it's a shining face or the fruits of the Spirit or just the joy of the Lord that is just inexpressible and full of glory, there's this mark of life and fullness. You know a difference between a full swimming pool and an empty one with full of algae. I tell you now, it has a different taste. It has a different feel. It has a different shimmer. And so it is with the Spirit. We're called to be full, and we're going to call to keep that fullness. So just bear in mind what Pierre's going to preach next week. And it may speak in tongues, but it may not. We don't hold that every outpouring of the Spirit has to be in tongues because we don't see that in Scripture and we don't see it in church history. But I tell you now, tongues are not to be feared, they're to be embraced. And if there is a tongue, it's happened here publicly, there's a way to deal with it. Oh, but tongues are also there to be enjoyed personally. If you come into that prayer room prior to the services, you will hear people speak gently in tongues. It's a wonderful gift. Not everybody has it. Some do. 
And if you don't have it, you can ask God for it. Not a game changer. And last, it will happen the first time, but it can happen many times. Please don't be that person that says, in 1933, God's Spirit poured out into my life, and that was it. No, no, no. We are to be seeking after the fullness of the Spirit. And in Scripture, it happens so many times. And so, in conclusion, church, we want every member, this is written by my fellow elder uh, on team, and this is what we as your eldership want. We want every member of our church Every believer gathered to know the full infilling of the Holy Spirit. He's fully equipping to live Christ-like lives and to celebrate their faith and their relationship with Jesus every day. We are not being deterministic about how that, that should look or what that should look like. We are simply asking, this is it. Please listen to me now. I know that's been a long preach, but this is what I'm asking you today. We are simply asking, have you eagerly sought the fullness of the normal Christian life? It includes the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Is this your experience? Do you know what we are talking about? Have you seen him fan into flame your gifts? Have you been filled with an enthusiasm for the world, the word, and the gospel? If you are dry and empty, maybe what is missing is that you have never known the full heritage of what God has promised you. And so on that note, SBC, we are praying that you'll be hungered this morning for what is the norm in the New Testament, a people rejoicing in the fullness of the Spirit. And that the call as we move towards this 27th of February be one of prayer and hungering for the Lord to come and pour out what is our birthright. So I'm going to ask you to stand in that vein.